0: Hello, I'm Kevin King, co-founder of Secret Seven.
1: I'm Kaia Charles, I'm the Cultural Projects Manager at Greenwich Peninsula and also a curator at NOW Gallery.
0: Welcome to the Secret Seven podcast, an exploration of the infinite and holy connection between music and art.
1: In each episode, we will be meeting artists who've contributed to Secret Seven since its inception in 2012.
0: And we'll be learning about their process, passions, and their connection with music.
1: On today's episode, we welcome Cosmo Vinyl.
0: Cosmo Vernal is perhaps best known for his work with Ian Drury and The Blockheads, and then The Clash. Starting out with Stiff Records in 1976, he became a key figure in the London-based music scene. Stick on The Clash is live at Shear Stadium and his voice will be the first you hear, firing up the audience before the band launched into London Calling. By the mid-1980s, he had moved to New York City and after marrying and becoming a father, he decided to end his professional involvement with music. His role within the music industry remains something of an enigma a manager, come organiser, come ringmaster. Since the 90s, Cosmo has developed into both an artist and a cultural curator. He has since exhibited his works at various shows, including the RA Summer Exhibition, and was co curator of the late Ian Drury's first art exhibition, More Than Fair, a retrospective shown at the Royal College of Art in London. Welcome to the show, Cosmo.
1: Hello there, Kevin. This is Cosmo Vinyl in New York City, and uh Really happy to be here today to be part of this uh, Secret 7 podcast and the whole show in auction, which I think is fantastic.
0: Thanks for joining us today, Cosmo. I had a quick question I'm asking everyone at the start is just to see what you've been listening to today, if anything.
1: What have I been listening to today? It's uh, noon here, and I've not listened to any music, just the bad news on the radio, I'm afraid. Uh- Last night, I was listening to um, some raga music on the radio.
0: Nice. What were you doing last night?
1: Uh, just chilling, just chilling back in the city and chilling. And I put on the um, KCR radio station, Columbia University, and uh, they have some uh, raga stuff. And uh, then I watched some football.
0: So for people that aren't familiar with you, I was going to ask if you could explain your role with Ian Drury and The Clash.
1: Okay, so um, my role relating to music would be that in 1976, I managed to talk my way into a job doing anything at Stiff Records, and that eventually parlayed into me working with Ian Dury after I emceed the Stiffs, Greatest Stiffs Tour of 1977 with another guy, Les Pryor. Rest in peace, we were the MCs. Ian and I got on very, very well. I was familiar with his previous group, Kilburn and the High Roads, and I started working with him. And he and I were a a bit of a team in kind of plotting and planning, and um, I did his press and promotion, but basically he and I kind of decided what we would and wouldn't do. So I worked with him until after reasons to be cheerful, by which time I had got to know the Clash camp quite well and I moved camps from Ian Dury to the Clash and I stayed with the Clash until they were no more, doing various things, shining shoes, cutting hair, lending clothes, press, promotion, some managerial stuff. But um, overall, I would say with the Clash, my role was concierge which is a mafia term for an advisor who can disagree with everybody without getting shot. <laughs> is that is that a reasonable?
0: I think that's good, yeah. I think I've never really, I've seen you described as a manager, organiser, ringmaster.
1: All those guilty, guilty, guilty.
0: So all both Ian and The Clash have had their fair share of, I guess, iconic, memorable record sleeves. I wondered if you were involved in the commissioning or making of any of them.
1: Well, not with Ian. Ian Dury worked with um, the legendary Barney Bubbles, and if anybody listening to this podcast doesn't know who Barney Bubbles is, you should look him up, because he was probably the greatest British graphic designer of the second half of the 20th century, from World War II until the end. I would, I would argue a case for Barney being the greatest. So Ian and Barney worked on those sleeves, and... Um, that, that was just them, that that was their, their area. Barney designed them, and I think Ian just went with what Barney produced because he was so impressed. And then The Clash was much more of a cooperative, open to creative things. And so, um, you know, one would make suggestions, maybe like, oh, maybe the lettering's not right on that one, or maybe you know this one. We should try something else, or or that's fantastic, or whatever. And then specifically the Know Your Rights single, I had drawn something that um a little thing copying a Hungarian revolutionary badge and changing it a bit, and that became the Know Your Rights logo and the Know Your Rights single. But full disclosure, um, Jules Baum, who's someone who I think did has done Secret Seven in the past, he had to kind of redo it to, to, to the required standard and uh, Strummer put in the the future is unwritten bit. But, but, you know, if you saw my rough and the thing, you would say that's it.
0: I was going to ask you about Barney, um, whether you were close to him, because I know that uh, I, have a, I have a book that's got an intro from Peter Savile and Malcolm Garrett, who I know greatly influenced them. Were you close to Barney?
1: I won't say, when I say close, when I first worked at Stiff Records, we were talking about a little back street shop front um, with a a tiny little front bit and a tiny little office at the back, you know, tiny, and then a basement downstairs. And um, Barney was kind of downstairs, and I don't know how many people were working at Stiff at a time, six, seven, eight, you know, it was a really small group of people. And Barney was down in the basement doing the covers, and um, he was the first person that I ever met that, that did art for a living and that he did record covers, like he made the record covers. And it shows you how sharp I was in those days. It had never occurred to me that somebody had to actually put these record covers together. I don't know what I was thinking. I must have looked at every record cover on display in London when I was a young teenager, spent hours in the record shops just going through the covers because they couldn't throw you out for that. And so I must have seen tens of thousands of record covers. And it never occurred to me that that somebody had to actually, you know, like make them. So um Barney was the first person I ever met like that. And so we were all close at stiff in those days, but but you know, just within the work environment and going to gigs. But I, I I don't want to create an impression that, like, I was close to Barney, you know, in some kind of special way. But he was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, he and I got on really well. And we nearly shared a flat together, but it didn't work out. But he was, yeah, to me, he was just, he was just wonderful. He was very wonderful. And then for those that don't know, there was a parting of the ways at Stiff Records fairly early on. And Jake Riviera, one of the two founders, and Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and Barney left to do their own thing. So then, then they were no longer around. But the interesting thing is that despite the Barney not doing any stiff stuff after that, he did Ian. That was kind of like, I don't know if people know the drummer Al Jackson. He played for Stax and he also did the Al Green records and he was like the only person allowed to, to, to do both. You know, so anyway, but he was he was a wonderful man and, uh, you know, very sad that he took his own life.
0: You see, I read a nice, oh, I think I heard it actually. It was a video of you talking about some promotion you did with the Ian Drury Do-It-Yourself campaign with the wallpaper.
1: Wallpaper, yes. We, um, Ian and Barney hit on this idea of, Ian wanted to call the record Do-It-Yourself. And so they, they uh, hit upon this idea of using wallpaper and Stiff got in contact with Crown Wallpaper. Just an aside, but a funny one. Before then, Ian and I were thinking of calling the record that became Do-It-Yourself Durex. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to have the record inside a tear-open packet, like a condom, and the inner sleeve would be like a Gossamer, like, like a Durex. But um, the guys at Stiff said that Durex weren't... I don't know if they actually ever contacted them, but they said that Durex weren't interested. But, but that was the original idea. Um, For me and Ian,
0: we actually have a seven-inch condom in the show this year. That's funny.
1: Oh wow! Well, there you go. Well, we we wanted to have it in the packet, you know, and we were going, we would thinking, be great promotion. The record would be called Durex. It's going to do well, you know, and people would tear open the cover to get the record out.
0: Well, that's exactly what we've got. That's funny. It's in a it's in a packet. Wow. You got to tear it open after after make sure I show you that one.
1: Wow! Well, there you are. It's still a good idea. How many years later? Yeah. A good idea is a good idea. Um, so we went with the wallpaper. And so then I had to come up. When I worked with Ian, one of the things I always tried to do is to make, make a bit of an event with the, with the press that, that, that the, um, when the record came out, try and make something of it so it wouldn't go unnoticed. You know? So I came up with this idea of wallpapering the offices of all the music papers and uh, i got i got a squad of blokes together and we we got this guy who was the fastest wallpaper in the world he'd been at the ideal home exhibition and he was like you know the super super fastest wallpaper in the world could, could wallpaper a room in like 2 minutes or something and so so we set out and we wallpapered the offices of of the enemy some of the some of the enemies, some of sounds, and some of the record mirror. But when we went to the Melody Maker, there was – the Melody Maker was in these Nissan huts, like out in South London, like dodgy old, you know, like what you'd imagine soldiers in, in, I don't know, Timbuktu, like living in, and, uh, you know, with tin roofs kind of thing. And um, it was all locked up. And so I hit upon the bright idea of wallpapering their windows over instead. And uh, did not go down well with uh, the editor of the Melody Maker, and I was persona non gratis there for some considerable. T- in fact, I'm not even even sure if if he ever let me off the hook for that one. He got very very upset because they couldn't see out the windows or anything. I thought it looked fantastic, but but he didn't he didn't seem to appreciate it.
0: So it sounds like you were involved in sort of coming up with creative ideas and some of the execution, but because you were surrounded by artists really if you've got barney bubbles ian drury who was a painter himself paul Simonon from the clash was painting around that time so you weren't painting at that point
1: no no i i i was completely before i went to stiff i was completely unaware of art really you know like i probably knew the like the name of four artists and they would all, all be attached to like bad jokes you know what i mean like picasso or Vincent van Gogh, or, you know, you know what I mean. Completely, n- n- didn't know anything about it, and um, and you know, Ian Ian Dury had been to the Royal College of Art. He had studied under Sir Peter Blake, and he taught art. So you know, he was, and then Barney was, you know, this amazing talent. But um, you know, I shared a hotel room with Ian for the best part of two years, and I, I never asked him one question about his art, not one. I mean, how rude is that? It's terrible. But I didn't. It just wasn't my focus. It wasn't. So even when I got involved at first thinking about art via Barney, it was only to do with the packaging of of records. And then over time, it kind of, um, it must have seeped in. I think, I think Ian Dury maybe gave me an art education without me even realizing. And then the Clash guys were just, I think Mick, Joe, and Paul had all been to art school. But I think Paul had seriously been to art school. And and although Mick certainly had some talent, I think Mick went to art school a Lennon, Keith Richard, in the sense that, like, if I go to art school, then I can form a band. You know, I'll find the guys there to form a band. Whereas, you know, Ian went to art school to be a painter. And I think Paul went to be a painter.
0: I've seen pictures of you with Andy Warhol as well with The Clash.
1: yes. Well, I don't. There's, there's not too much to say. I mean, Andy, I'm a huge fan of Andy Warhol's work, um, particularly the stuff before he got shot. For me, there's a real, my little bit of critique there, Cosmo vinyl art critic. I'm um, I, I, I particularly keen on the stuff before he got shot. He would come to the class shows in um, New York City. He would always come to the class shows and... Somebody who worked at the CBS Records, it was then, before it was Sony, that worked in the press department there Uh, was a lady called Susan Blonde who'd been in some Warhol films and she was very close to him. So he would always come to to the New York shows. And um, I remember once him sitting in the dressing room and um, there'd been this thing about an Andy Warhol robot. Some guy was making an Andy Warhol robot or was going to and so I sit sitting in the dressing room. So I said, Andy, I said, are you the robot or are you just Andy? And he said, I'm just Andy. He said, the robot is far more interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, he was a fan.
0: It's incredible the sort of people that you surrounded yourself with and at that point gravitate towards art and then and then that's where you are today. I wonder whether you could talk about maybe what that trigger was for you to start creating.
1: Um. Well, I think, you know, I mean, in hindsight, you know, one has a different perspective. But at the time, you know, one. I mean, it it kind of just, I think it just developed. With Ian, that was very much covered with Ian Dury. You know, it's like Barney's does the artwork. Barney's absolutely fantastic. Ian knows what's, so that's just between the two of them. You know, it's done. It's like no, no need to spend any time on that. And then the class was just much more open. What do you think? This is the idea. What do you... Hey, we're going this way. We're going that way. But the class were very unreceptive to ideas on, on really kind of any front. You know, like if somebody had an idea, they would listen to it. I mean, and, and, and it would get critiqued. And uh, so, you know, you had to be pretty thick-skinned as far as putting ideas forward. But, but provided... That didn't bother you, then you know they they were very very open and if, if if it was an idea they liked, they would grab it immediately they wouldn't wouldn't be concerned you know like oh, you can't say like this guy is is only this and he's saying, do that, and that's the right thing to do they would you know they would they were open they were very open and so it was an open creative area where you could say like hey maybe it would look better like this or maybe you know, hey, look at this lettering. Maybe we could use that sometime. Yeah, that's great. Keep that. Keep that. And so so one was in a creative area. And then I think when that when that ended for me and I was on my own, I think that maybe after a while, you know, maybe I missed that creative side of things or whatever. And then um, I started a family. And when I had Two sons to look after because I did the Mr. Mum, you know, the stay-at-home dad type thing. Take them to school, do all that stuff. You know, change the diapers, do all that. During that time, I started to get to get you know to start messing around with things on the kitchen table, and um, had a fantastic time raising my kids. Absolutely fantastic. And and in the downtime of that, I, I I got into doing more stuff. Um, I send a lot of postcards. And uh, what happened eventually was that I ran out of postcards to send because I'd be sending people postcards and they'd be like, I really like that Jack Kerouac postcard you send. I've got four of them from you. So, so I ran out of postcards, so I started making my own and I would send strummer these little collage type things that I would make instead of store-bought postcards or I would stick things on store-bought. Postcards, and slowly over time, that kind of developed and uh, took off. It gained momentum, became its own thing.
0: I love this idea of you like working with the Clash, then you're just pulling the plug on it all, becoming a stay-at-home dad, and sending Joe Strummer your postcards.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, in fairness, I have to say that that the stiff thing, then the Ian thing, and the Clash thing, ultimately were kind of like more renegade setups, you know, they're more left of center than your standard music industry. You know, I don't think I was really cut out to be like, you know, who are we doing this week? You know what I mean? Okay, let's, you know, and and, and the same for me with touring. I mean, I I spent a lot lot of time on the road and it was like, I don't really want to go on tour with Liberace, you know what I mean? It's not really what I want to do. I kind of felt like, you know, i would had enough. So although I'd worked in music, I think... In retrospect I was something of an outsider and I wasn't suddenly gonna be, you know, some kind of company guy. And then I started a family and I was messing around with a few things to start the family and then I wanted to be with my kids. And that that became the most important thing.
0: And then since then you've sort of just been developing your own artwork. I, I read somewhere that you contributed to a group show in twenty ten at the Idea Generation Gallery in London, which I found funny because that's where the very first secret seven took place in 2012 and then since then your your own artworks seems to influence a lot of sort of mid-century comics and british footy mags so i wonder if you could expand on what the story well, is
1: there I, there's different things i mean i think you you know at, at the end of the day i i would imagine most people's are in some ways about them you know so so there's kind of the things you like and the things you're influenced by and 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 slowly you kind of like expand out. But I think you mentioned Ideas Generation Gallery. And that was a thing for Ray Lowry. And they asked me to do something. And um, I think they thought I was going to write something. And I I made an art piece instead. And I think it kind of took them by surprise. But it was supposedly very well received. I I didn't get to go. Um, I couldn't go at the time. So... It was was fairly well received, and I was making little things. And then I I started on this uh, series of collages regarding West Ham United called Is Saints Your Daddy? And uh, I made a piece of art for every game West Ham played, and that ended up going on for five years, which is completely insane, I know. Talk about get yourself committed. So... (laughs) That was like, ended up being 200. I still haven't counted them all because it's just like too scary to like actually put a final number on it. But it was over 200 pieces. So, so I made 200 pieces about West Ham and, and, and being a West Ham fan and and that kind of culture. And now it's completed, I can kind of see it for, you know, more clearly for, for what it is. And it's really a – it's a – a Love Letter to the, to the Romantic Age of Football, which has now passed. And I, and I did it for the West Ham's last five years at the Bowling Football Ground. So it's, it's also about East London and my childhood and, and you know, the, the, the what did I call it? The trials and tribulations of being 3,451 miles from West Ham and Upton Park. So the football thing was very much that. But having done over 200 pieces and a World Cup for a a place in Somerset, I did a show um, on on England and the World Cup. I kind of feel like I've covered football. I'm not saying I won't do any more football pieces, but I'm in no great rush to do any more football pieces. But for that, I just grabbed whatever I could find, you know, whatever, whatever came to hand. I'm a bit of a pirate when it comes to art, you know? I'll take what I want and I'll dangle for it.
0: You talked then about, obviously, you're from London, but you're in New York and you've been in New York for some time.
1: Yeah, I've been in New York longer than I ever was in London. It's crazy.
0: Your accent stayed true, though.
1: Oh, yes. Well, that's, that's the problem. My problem is that when I'm over here, everybody thinks I'm a tourist. And then when I go back to England and I try to say I'm a tourist, they go, oh, come on. Don't give me all that. So, yeah, I can't win either way.
0: And what's the difference have you found between London and New York music and art scene?
1: I, I have to be honest and say that I no, no longer feel um, informed enough to tell you about the music scene. You know, over here in New York, everything has changed so much because, you know, I mean, I was getting out as CDs were coming in, you know, so and, and to all those people who said – oh, they're so fantastic, oh, listen to them, it sounds so great. And I'd be going, no, they don't sound right, there's something wrong. And they'd be going, what is he talking about? Anyway, now everybody goes, oh, vinyl, yeah, sure, obviously if you want a good sound, you've got to listen to it on vinyl. Boy, they conned a lot of people on that one. Anyway, I was getting out as that was coming in, so I don't understand, I don't even understand how how bands survive anymore, you know? So um, I can't say really. My my sons are in their twenties, so they keep me somewhat adrift. I'd say the big difference is though, when um, going back a few years now, my boys were into grime, and people like Lady Sovereign would play in New York, and they couldn't go because the places that they would play you had to be 21 with ID. And so, like you're like 15 and 16, and you couldn't see like Dizzy Rascal or, or Lady Sovereign or, or the ones that would come over, and they would be pretty upset about that. And I thought it really stank, you know. Um, so I know that from that point of view, you don't. It's it, it, it's it's a bit of an. I'm not saying it's an older scene across the board, but but when things are smaller, it's hard to see them at least until you're of a certain age, you know, like maybe like at 19 you can get a fake ID and wing it. But, you know, when you're 15, you can't go into a nightclub and say you're 21, Yeah, Bouncer's not going to buy that. Um, the art scenes, I don't really know the English art scene too much because I've been here since I've been doing art. But I, I, I would guess that the big difference, and a lot of people will be upset by this, say so the big difference is I think there's probably more money for art in America than there is in England, you know? I think it's probably easier to get backing and do things. Not that I'm at any big level, but I I would have thought that that would have been been the big difference, you know? But, you know, people are producing great stuff everywhere. There's a lot of great stuff produced all kinds of places.
0: And despite you living, I can't remember how many miles you said, 3,700?
1: 3,000, I don't know, whatever it was, yeah.
0: you managed to see... Secret Seven shows in both 2016 and 2018. I wondered if you could say what you made of it in the flesh.
1: Fantastic. Really, it was a really great idea. I have to say, I got introduced to Secret Seven and then to you by the artist-illustrator Ian Wright, who I've known for many, many, many years, many, many, many years, and um, since the late 70s. And he had suggested... There was this thing called Secret Seven and he, he had suggested that I should participate and I said, sure. So I think he ran it by you and you said sure and so I did it and so I had to sadly come to London for a funeral of the poet Jock Scott of whom I later did a painting which showed at the Royal Academy um, on Grayson's summer special. But But I managed to duck out from the double-decker bus that was going to the, uh, to the wake. And I must duck out and, and come and see the show in um, Sonos, just off Brick Lane. Fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, 700 record sleeves, all original art. I mean, what's there not to like? I mean, really terrific and all for a good cause. And then I didn't see the Somerset House, but I did manage to be over and saw you at Greenwich Peninsula. So that one was, um, again... Really, really great. So, no, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and it's uh, you always pick a good cause. And, uh, you know, I think it's a win-win. I think it's everybody involved, perhaps other than you, has got to do all the donkey work. It's uh, absolutely fantastic, and uh, I'm really proud. It means I would have done four of the seven. So I'm very honoured to have been part of it. In
0: 2018, we had the clash I'm Not Down as one of our tracks, which felt particularly special with you contributing and you got a number of people involved too which was great
1: sure absolutely yeah I mean why not get people involved I've I try to get people involved
0: I need I need insiders like you to help me get people involved that's always helpful
1: I'm sure and and I'm glad to do that and you know it's um depends what people are up to you know and I think you know for some people it's how you know some people overthink it don't they you know they've You know, they start to get a bit, not carried away, but they they, they lose perspective. Fine thing for me to say, right? A guy who spent five years on West Ham talking about other people losing perspective. That's a bit much. But um, you have some great people this year that I know. I guess Ian Wright is doing it again. And Humphrey Ocean, who used to be in Ian Dewey's band, Kilburn and the High Roads, and is a painter of considerable note, now, I should say Humphrey Ocean RA and uh, a friend of mine, uh English girl who lives in the south of the uh, United States in Georgia, Ruth Franklin. She's done a couple. So, yeah, it's great. And, uh, and uh, yeah, i got you some people involved for the class thing. Yeah, I'm happy to do it.
0: And in terms of your piece for this year's Secret Seven, can you, without giving too much away, talk about how you've approached it?
1: Um, well, I, I approached some – I've approached them all the same in the sense that I picked the record, you know, I picked the record. And and, and um, then I try to come up with something that that will tell you something about what the record is about, you know, like w- what this record is about or what it could be about. I mean, because there's no there's no definitive answer. I mean, I've learned with my own art, you know, sometimes people, you've got a piece up in a gallery and people go and look at it and they've, they've got a whole other thing going on, you know? What it, what it means to them is something entire thing that never entered your mind. And, and I think that's fantastic. I don't think that's bad. I think that's great. So, so you know, so my interpretation, what I, what I see from it. So, so once, once I've decided what it's about, then I decide what to enlist to, to get that idea over. You know, what, what am I going to use? How am I going to say that if you think this is about this? Because it won't be talking out of school. It was like, I don't know, was it at the Sonus one? There was one. It was the jam art school. And I just wanted to get across, because I thought maybe kids don't know that, that when the jam first came out, I assume a few times the Red Cow and a few other places like that, they were very much part of of, of what was being called the punk scene, the punk movement, and I just felt that over time that had kind of been washed away a little bit, you know, and I know they were kicked off, you know, the tour, I can't remember if it was Anarchy or White Riot, whatever, but, you know, I know they were off and then they were away doing their own thing, but I just wanted people to understand that, that you know, that at that time, Paul Weather was very much seen in with, with Strummer and the others. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was a separate mod thing right from the get-go, you know, or his version of the mod thing. I don't want to offend any of the uh, more serious modernists. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm trying to, you know, get what it's about over. So I can't really say too much about this one because even saying what it is will get people on the trail, won't it? And uh, the idea is to keep it secret.
0: It is to keep it a secret for sure. But I just still think that the some of the themes that you've got across in yours, despite them being like, pretty obvious themes of the track. Only a couple of people have approached it as kind of directly.
1: Well, I I, I think, you know, that that's, that's what, I, what I see in it, you know, or hearing it, you know? I mean, because really what you're trying to do or what I'm trying to do, because I don't have to... The great thing for me about Secret 7 is there is no commercial concern. There's no product manager to say, you can't do that. You know, there's nobody to say that. And nobody else has to agree. And that's the thing I most like about art. doing art is that I can do exactly what I want. Maybe when I say what I want, I mean some things I don't have the technique or the ability to do what I'd wish for. But what I mean is I can do what I want. If I want to do this, this is how it is and that's it. Nobody can tell me no, no, no. And that's the thing I love about it. So, So with this, it's like, i think this about this song and this record and i can do that and no one can say oh no man that's you know you can't do that or you can't you can't have that or you can't you know you can't say it's about that it's like yes i can and that's what i love about it
0: and that's what i love about people taking part too just the breadth of interpretation which i guess i'm also in a privileged position to Know about?
1: Well, you've got to get something. You've got to get something. You're working. You're working your arse off, man. You know this man on the other other end of this talking, Kevin King. This guy has been devoted, devoted to this thing, and uh, we should all we should all acknowledge that. And uh, round of applause. Come on, come on. Put your cup of tea or your beer down and give him a clap.
0: Well, I'm taking inspiration from you, Um, and it's it's the last year this year, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on being a dad.
1: Okay, well that's good. That's good. You've done seven years. That seems to be a good, a good amount.
0: Well, Cosmo, I, I feel like we've run um, out of time here. Even though I could talk to you forever. One day we'll get together, have a beer.
1: Absolutely.
0: I feel like I could just listen Ab- to you talk about hey. stories of the past all day.
1: Yeah, well, I've got enough to last all day. Sadly, um, you just have to say that's enough. Okay, time to go now. But anyway, well, thank you, Kevin. And thank the the, the posse in London there for putting this together and the engineer here. Take care. And folks, get online, check these things out, and get bidding. Come on, put your hand in your pocket. You ain't spent no money in ages. So come on, do it for a good cause. All right, man, take care. Take care. You know where to find me. Bye.
0: All 700 unique Secret 7 records in this year's show will be auctioned in aid of help refugees on the 1st of November. Visit secret-7.com for more details. The Secret 7 podcast was recorded at Spiritland Studios in London's King's Cross. Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to television, radio, podcasts and online. So whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Visit spiritlandproductions.com to find out more.